Let's see. Wedding gown? Check. Flowers? Check. Photographer? Check. Cake? DJ? Wedding coordinator? Check, check, and check. A documentary film crew to capture every second of this great day and edit it down to 22 minutes so it can be aired on cable TV so women everywhere can, can critique it and men can skip over it. Check. Are we forgetting something? Oh, yeah, the preacher. We got to have somebody to sign the license. It used to be that weddings were private family affairs that sucked up Saturday afternoons, but no more. Weddings seem to be the hottest venue for cable TV. I mean, getting some part of your big day on the small screen seems to be the biggest accessory for 21st century weddings. Don't believe me? Well, just scroll through your basic cabled 100 TV channels or so, and you're bound to stumble on some wedding-related reality show. There's I. I, uh, I promise um, that uh, follows uh, nervous boyfriends who try to plan the perfect way to pop the question. There's say yes to the dress, which follows brides who try on mega expensive wedding dresses. There's cake boss, you know, which follows the antique of an eccentric Italian family as they pump out wedding cakes. And if you're interested in uh, seeing the nuptials of the super wealthy, then WeTV has the platinum weddings that you can watch that. Or if you're interested in the other end of the spectrum, you've got CMT who shows my big redneck weddings as well. There's even some for kids on there, engaged and underage, which follows kids, teens, who, are, who are, uh, take the plunge before they're even able to vote. Ah, it just seems like Americans love to watch a train wreck. Jesus, too, seemed fond of weddings. At least it seems so in Scripture, right? I mean, he helped cater a wedding there in Cana, uh, providing some last-minute wine for the guests there. And he often uses wedding imagery in his teaching and preaching to illustrate truths about the kingdom of God. So too in our gospel lesson today, Jesus tells a parable that has a wedding theme along with it. But if people today are wedding obsessed, the people in our parable were wedding allergic. The king sends out an invitation to his special guest to come to the celebration of his son there. And the, the invitation goes out, but instead of being eager to attend a royal wedding, the guests responded with a big, fat no. The king reiterated the extravagance. He says, look, go tell them. I have the dinner ready. I have my oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding. In other words, this party is going to be nuts. You don't want to miss it. But again, nothing. What's worse, some of the invited guests seized those handing out the invitations, treated them shamefully, and killed them. 
enraged by such rude, violent behavior, the disrespected king sends in his army and destroys the city. Then he sends out others to be invited. Why was that city destroyed? This is part that you'd have to note here. Scripture says the city was destroyed because they were not worthy. Now, wedding feasts in Scripture often um, talk, uh, symbolize you know, the, the uh, consummation of the kingdom of God. That day in the future when God calls all things to an end and his son finally gets the honor due him. Prophecies in Scripture usually have a present or near future fulfillment, but also an end of time, ultimate fulfillment as well. It has that dual purpose, and, and so too in this parable. Um, there is that end of time, you know, fulfillment, the wedding feast, the banquet at the end of time. But this one is more pointedly as to what is happening now, that kingdom that Jesus has come to usher into the world. Jesus is the bridegroom, the Messiah, and the religious elite at that time didn't want anything to do with him. They couldn't care less. They were too busy. They rejected him, and some of them planned to kill him. So instead of saving the date and marking the calendars, the Jewish leaders couldn't care less. They were in opposition to the king and his son. They did not show respect to the king and his son. And so they were deemed not worthy. And the city would be destroyed, which, by the way, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. But then, as I said, the invitation goes out to the world. The invitation starts with the first disciples, but the other ones, the found ones, the bad and good ones that Jesus is talking about, that's you and I. The invitation goes out to the world. We hear this invitation through the proclamation of the gospel, and it's applied to us in holy baptism. Our sins are forgiven. Our status is secured. We are welcome guests in God's kingdom. He wants us. He invites us. He makes us guests, welcome guests of the great wedding feast. God would have us have some of that same uh, uh, interest and enthusiasm that we have for crazy cakes and pricey wedding gowns to also be focused on what's going to happen. But how do we do that? Well, there's really three good reasons uh, for us to rejoice and give thanks that we have been invited and welcomed guests to God's wedding banquet. And the first one is painfully obvious, but, you know, rejoice. Rejoice that you have been invited. If the promises of God are true, and we have received the gifts of God, like the forgiveness of sins, 
um, the power of the Holy Spirit, meaning and purpose for this life, a secure future that is guaranteed. If we have received these gifts, then Christians ought to be the happiest people in the world. Our hearts should be filled with joy. And faith tells us that these things are true. But so often, Jesus' followers live as if they have no joy, like their Evite got lost in cyberspace. We, we get caught up on petty things that in our minds we turn into major offenses. We're distracted. We complain. We whine. We worry about minor things. We sometimes act like those bridezillas on those TV shows that we love to hate. All bent out of shape over the small things that we allow to overshadow the big things. But no matter what happens to us here in this life, by faith we know that we are invited and welcome guests in God's eternal banquet feast. So lighten up and rejoice. The second way that we can rejoice and give thanks is by inviting others. I mean, the parable couldn't be clearer no matter who you are or where you are, God has invited you to come to the wedding hall so that the hall is filled to the gill with guests. The king told his servants, go out into the roadways and gather all people, bad and good, so that my wedding hall may be filled with guests. There's an, an invitation, sometimes you get these wedding invitations that say you plus one, you know, um, and usually it's no kids as well. I mean, like who wants to pay $100 per plate for Junior to ask for chicken nuggets and then run around the wedding hall like a wild turkey, right? But God is different. His invitation isn't you plus one. His invitation is you plus as many as you can invite to come along as well. Who have you invited lately? Who have you introduced to the kingdom of God? Start at home. Are your children worshiping with you? Is your spouse seated next to you? If not, why not? When was the last time you invited someone to come and hear God's invitation for eternal life? Let's get cracking because this is a can't-miss celebration. And then the third way that uh, we can uh, rejoice and give thanks is by letting God decide who gets in. Sometimes we try to guess who's in and who's out. And by doing that, we lose joy of being in God's wedding banquet. But that's not our job. In the text, it says that the king walks into the banquet hall and sees a guy not in wedding garments. And he says, friend, how did you get in here without wedding garments? And friend, it'd be like us saying sir or ma'am, because it's not friend on uh, how we think of friendship, you know. Sir, ma'am, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? 
And there's a lot of speculation then about, okay, so what is this wedding garment? Is it Christ's righteous robe? Is this wedding garment, you know, being clothed with Christ? Is this wedding garment the good works that clothe faith? But if we stick with this parable and look what this parable is saying and and see it in the context of the previous parables, the question is not, what do the wedding garments symbolize? The question is, what does it mean to not have wedding garments? And when you look at it that way, in this parable, it's answered by the first part of the parable. Why were the first invitees destroyed? I told you to remember this. Because Jesus said they were not worthy. So why is this schlub tossed out of the wedding banquet? Because he is not worthy for not respecting the king enough to have wedding garments. Worthiness, then, what does that mean? Worthiness, as we see in this parable and in the previous parables, is believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. That's what makes one worthy. That's the wedding garments that we receive to be in the wedding hall. Now, God wants all to be saved. He says, all are invited, but God does, says, who's in and who's out. I mean, yeah, the king tosses the, the gust out of the wedding hall there. The bigger point is that he's the one who does it, not us. You know, because so often we get caught up in who's in and who's out. And there's a lot of talk about that these days, you know, with, uh, you know, God is a God of love, so no one is excluded. Well, that's kind of debunked by this parable right here. You know, the, the guy gets tossed out of the wedding hall. Um, and, you know, we tend to bicker about, you know, you know who worships right, who dresses appropriately, um, you know, who has the tightest theology? Whose life is the cleanest? But the point that Jesus is making here is that God is the one who does the bouncing, not us. He knows who's worthy and who is not, who is in and who is not. Our job is simply to invite, enjoy the party, and invite some more. All are invited, but God does the bouncing. The last sentence of this uh, parable also needs some clarification. You know, Jesus says at the very end there that many are called, but few are chosen. I mean, that's the way our English translation puts it. Um, but this is a Semitism, a Jewish idiom 
here. Um, and people see this and they go, oh, see, Scripture doesn't say that everyone is called, you know. It just says many are called, not all are called. And then they use that to justify uh, double predestination, that God predestined some to heaven and predestined some to hell. Or they use it as a justification not to invite other people since only God knows who is worthy. But that's a misreading of the Jewish idiom here. The word poloi, which is many in Greek there, is often used to mean all, like the many, all people. And so a better English uh, equivalent of this idiom would be all are called, but not all are chosen. God does not limit his invitation his call to people. God extends it to everyone, but not everyone is worthy. Not everyone believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So all are called, but not all honor the King by believing that Jesus is the Christ. Our society just seems obsessed with weddings. I saw on our website that annually people that the United States spends about, get this, $70 billion on weddings annually. That the average wedding is twenty-five dollars to $30,000. Well, if you didn't spend that much on your wedding, don't worry. You can go on the TV and find people who spent way more than that to bring up the average. But here... Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a wedding banquet. You are invited. What makes you worthy to attend is believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then honor the Son by inviting others to the wedding banquet as well. And then rejoice. Enjoy the banquet. Because after all, this wedding banquet is going to be incredible.